Okay. Uh, hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. Um, so we'll, we'll talk, we'll sort of do a, um, a quick survey of CAR T-cell therapy and lymphoma. Um, these are my disclosures. And this is the overview of what we'll discuss. So we'll talk a little bit about the scientific background, the clinical efficacy and toxicity from the clinical trials, as well as from some of the emerging real-world experiences. And then I thought we'd go through some instructive case series to really, and studies to show you know, some of the um, nuances about treating patients in the real world. And, and uh, I think it helps highlight some, of, uh, some referral patterns and some things to consider um, when you have a patient in front of you. Um, and that will end us with a discussion of CAR T-cell eligibility and referral considerations. And then uh, we'll touch a little bit about where the field's going in the future. So this is just an outline of the development of adoptive cellular therapies uh, in, in oncology, which really started in the 1950s with the concept of allogeneic stem cell transplant. But it really wasn't until the discovery of IL-2 in the 1980s that, and uh, tumor-infiltrating lymphocytes that the, uh, the concept of CAR T-cell therapy came to life. And in the 1990s, uh, the first-generation CARs uh, were um, developed, and they were tested in clinical trials, and they had poor efficacy. And I'll show you what the first-generation CAR T-cells look like in the next slide. And then it took about a decade before um, these were optimized into the current generation of CAR T-cells, second-generation CAR T-cells that entered the clinic uh, and then led to the FDA approval of two products. So these are the generation. These are the generations of CAR T cells. So on the um, left-hand side, you can see that, that you, have, you see the first-generation CAR T cells, which have an extracellular uh, domain that is an FC variable fragment of an antibody molecule to a tumor antigen, and then intracellularly, they had a co-stimulatory molecule for the for the T cell, which was CD3 zeta, and these did not expand or persist uh, sufficiently uh, in, in the clinic, um, which led to the generation of second-generation CAR T cells, which are the CAR T cells that we'll largely talk about today. And so these added a second co-stimulatory domain intracellularly, um, either CD28 generally or 41BB. And CD28 and 41BB have some important differences, which, uh, will, uh, help, which helps to differentiate the two, con the two products that are FDA approved for lymphoma right now. Um, so CD28 ca uh, CARs uh, are, tend to expand in an antigen-specific way. And upon infusion, they tend to expand very rapidly and early, and that may have some important implications uh, for uh, some of the toxicities that Dr. Fergalt will talk about next. And the 41BB cars uh, tend to expand in an, in an antigen-independent way and are sort of more tonic signaling, and the expansion tends to, take, uh, tends to be slower um, and more gradual, um, again, which may have implications for the timing and uh, acuity of some of the toxicities we see. And then third-generation cars are in development. These will have three co-stimulatory domains intracellularly um, with unique combinations of uh, different co-stimulatory domains in addition to CD3 zeta. So I think just it's important when we think about how to, how to um, integrate CAR T cells into our, our oncology uh, clinics for lymphoma patients, it's important to take a minute just to think about how these T cells are manufactured and engineered, because this, this is different than other therapies we give to lymphomas, uh, lymphoma patients, um, in that there is a third party that manufactures these cells, and the cells are not available on demand. So first, you identify a patient in front of you um, for CAR T cell therapy, and you have to collect their T cells. The T cells then get sent to a laboratory where they they get transfected with the construct for the car um, and uh, then go through a, a, a quality assurance process and um, 
an expansion, um, and then they return back to the cancer center where they're infused into the patient. And so that process of T-cell transfection and manufacturing is variable from, from car to car um, and can take as few as right now 17 days in some instances and in other instances can take almost two months. And so that's an important consideration when you have a patient in front of you and you're considering whether they are a candidate for CAR T-cell therapy. So um, I think, you know, CAR T-cells have had great efficacy in heme malignancies, and, um, you know, I think we're all very uh, excited about the role it could play in other types of cancers, too. But uh, not every cancer is a good CAR T-cell candidate at present. Um, so what makes a cancer a good CAR T-cell candidate? Um, you know, first you have to have a cancer that has a tumor antigen on its surface that's present on all or most of the cancer cells, and it's really necessary for that cancer cell to survive so that there isn't a selective pressure to... Uh, to lose that antigen um, and therefore lose an, an immune response to the tumor. That tumor antigen also shouldn't be present on normal healthy cells, such that an, an immune attack on those normal healthy cells would lead to unacceptable toxicity. And so that ultimately is what leads to a good CAR T-cell candidate. And so for heme malignancies, CD19 was that target, um, and, then, and, and that's why we have uh, CAR T-cells right now, the only FDA-approved CAR T-cells target CD19. In solid tumors, I think it's hard to find that sort of target that's really important, for, uh, present on most cells and important for the cell to survive, that's also not present present on normal healthy tissue. Um, so there, when CD19 emerged as a good target, um, there were four different uh, cancer centers in the U.S. that were making CD19 cars at the time. The, the group at the University of Pennsylvania, led by Carl June, was making a 41BB anti-CD19 car that eventually became uh, um, Lucil um, or Kimraya. Uh, the National Cancer Institute uh, uh, were, uh, was developing a CD28 car, which eventually became axicaptogene sililucil, or Yescarda. And the Memorial Sloan Kettering and the Fred Hutch were both making their own cars. Memorial Sloan Kettering was making a CD28 car, and the Hutch was making a 41BB car. And they, they, uh, they, um, they formed a company together called Juno, um, and the CD28 car became JCAR15, which is no longer in clinical development um, due to some toxicity seen in an adult ALL population. But the 41BB car, JCAR17, um, which is now called lysocaptogene sililucil, um, is uh, currently in clinical trials and you know, anticipated to be the next FDA-approved CAR T-cell product for lymphoma. So these, the, here's, a, here's a quick survey of the data of these uh, three different constructs, uh, axi-cell, T-cell, and lysocell in, in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma and other high-grade uh, B-cell lymphomas. These are all patients who either have chemorefractory disease or relapse disease um, uh, after uh, second line or beyond of therapy. Um, the ZUMA-1 study uh, was a, a pivotal study for axi-cell, which treated 101 patients, um, and the Juliet study uh, was a pivotal study for uh, tisagenal, uh, tis, uh, um which treated 111 patients. Um, and the Transcend study is ongoing um, and hasn't been published, but this is data from, uh, from, uh, from ASH last year. So um, just a, importantly, I want to take a look at the response rates that we see. So this is a heavily pretreated population where uh, historical data would suggest that these patients have less than a 20% response rate to investigational agents um, and also have a about a six-month overall survival. Uh, here we see response rates that range from 52% to 82%, um, and we see re complete responses in 40 to 60% of patients. And these responses are durable. I mean, this is a, 
this is most of these uh, studies have short follow-up, but the six-month uh, six-month maintenance of a response uh, occurs in about 40% of patients. So, you know, it's early to say, but it, it, this may be a curative therapy for about 40% of relapse refractory aggressive B-cell non-Hodgkin lymphoma. I think an important thing to point out is just there were the number of patients who had T cells collected um, on all of these studies that were ultimately never treated, and that varied across the studies due to some of the logistics of how the studies were um, uh, how the studies were run, as well as how the T cells are manufactured. And you know, you can see. But on the Zuma 1 study, only 9% of patients were not treated, whereas on the Juliet study, 31% of patients were never treated. And so I think it's important to think about the intent to treat response rate, given the number of patients that were intended to be treated but were not treated, and assume that those patients were non-responders. Um, and you can see the, the response rates become quite different when you think about that. And I think that's just important as we move forward with potentially three different products that are going to be in commercial use. Um, but the Zuma 1 and Juliet study led to the FDA approval um, of these uh, constructs for relapse refractory, third line, and beyond uh, fuselage B cell lymphoma, transformed follicular lymphoma, and high grade B cell lymphoma. Um, the AxiCell is also approved for relapse refractory primary mediastinal large B cell lymphoma as well. Um, so the Zuma 1 study was updated with two-year results at ASH last year, um, and it just shows that, that there are very few relapses after the six-month mark. So I think using that six-month response rate is actually a really uh, predictive marker um, for long-term and durable remissions. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but the other aspect, other than just sort of the clinical efficacy of CAR T cells, the other aspect about their therapy that's unique is uh, their toxicity. Um, so Dr. Fergalt's going to talk about cytokine release syndrome and neurotoxicity. So I'm just going to mention that they happen. They happen at a very their their tempo and their um, frequency is different from different constructs to constructs, as well as from different diseases to diseases. Um, and uh, I'll let Dr. Fergalt expound on that in the next talk. Um, and I'll also let him talk about this. I only put this up here to say that there are we there have been emerged some clinical associations that can predict for neurotoxicity in particular, and those are important things to consider when you have a patient sitting in front of you, and also an important thing to consider when you think about the data I'm going to show you on the next slide, which are the rates of high-grade toxicity seen on the across the studies in lymphoma. So grade three or higher CRS is sort of the is the CR is the cytokine release syndrome that lands a patient in the ICU. It res, it requires vasopressor support or it requires high-level uh, respiratory support, and grade 3 or higher neurotoxicity are patients who are unable to participate in their activities of daily living um, and potentially are, are stuporous um, and require ICU level support for airway protection as well. And so you can see a variable uh, rate of grade 3 or higher CRS and grade 3 or higher neurotoxicity across the studies. And I just caught, you know, some of, some of these may be real differences because the, different, the delta is actually quite large, but when the differences are smaller, I think we just have to think of that the fact that the patients who went on each of these studies were not identical um, in terms of many different factors, um, and certainly in terms of their risk factors for developing these toxicities, and so we need to take this all with a grain of salt. So. Um, I think one of the crit criticisms of all of these studies is that this is a highly selected group of patients and doesn't reflect the patient who comes to see all of us in clinic with refractory diffuse large B cell lymphoma, and that this therapy may not 
may not hold up in terms of its power and efficacy in the real world. So at ASH last year, there were two real world experiences that were um, presented. I'll call the top one the Dana-Farber experience just because because uh, we let it, and then the bottom one the MD Anderson experience because they let it. Um, and so I'll just uh, compare the real world characteristics um, across the two studies. Um, so basically in terms of diseases, in terms of uh, prognostic factors, in terms of prior transplant and refractoriness to therapy, these were equally high-risk patients from the Zuma-1 study as well as uh, they, in relation to each other. I think the important thing is that about, uh, about 40 to 60 percent of patients in both of these series would not have been eligible for the Zuma-1 study of axicaptogene psilolucil um, in these diseases um, and for a variety of reasons. But when we, even though about almost half of patients would not have been eligible, when we look at the response rates, we see very, very comparable response rates in this population. So in the Dana-Farber experience, we saw a 44% CR rate, and at MD Anderson, they saw 57%. The response at six months at Dana-Farber was about 43%, so matched very similarly to what we saw um, on the um, Zuma-1 study. When we looked at toxicity, it was also very comparable, so rates of grade three or higher CRS were in the 10 to 15 percent range, which is what they saw on Zuma-1, um, and rates of grade 3 or higher neurotoxicity were in the 30 percent range, again, what we saw on Zuma-1. Um, so this is just, uh, the, the, this data was only with a median of six-month follow-up, but we can, you can see that the duration of response actually compares very favorably um, to what was seen on, on Zuma-1, and we're following these patients now for longer follow-up uh, in order to report that. We also were very interested in, in asking the question of, you know, specifically for patients who were eligible or not eligible for Zuma 1, was there a difference in their, um, in their response rates, their durability of response, and their survival? And the answer was no, um, at least at this time point. When we looked at these patients, uh, whether they were eligible for Zuma 1 or ineligible, um, the progression-free survival and overall survival was similar um, between the, the different groups. We also looked at to see if there were any covariates that associated with response, and there were really, ju just like on Zuma-1, there were no disease-specific uh, covariates in terms of uh, international prognostic index, cell of origin, double or triple hit cytogenetics, number of prior lines of therapy um, that correlated with, uh, with response or lack thereof. Uh, there was an inferior outcome seen on, in the Dana-Farber experience with uh, patients who had a higher, uh, higher performance status, uh, patients who had increased tumor bulk and patients who had a high day zero CRP, so high levels of inflammation at the time of their uh, CAR T-cell infusion, or patients who had a low ALC at the time of their leukophoresis. Um, and that the MD Anderson, uh, at MD Anderson, they also saw very similar um, correlations with high performance status associated with worse outcomes, and patients with bulky disease also associated with worse outcomes. So, so I think you know what we learned from the real world experience is that as you broaden eligibility criteria and allow um, allow centers to consider patients. Um, you know, according to what they think is safe and um, potentially effective, um, there we see excellent, we see preservation of the responses and the durability of response. Um, but I think it's important, we can go through some cases to sort of elucidate some of these patients that would not, either would not have been eligible for, for Zuma-1 and, and how we manage some of their uh, medical comorbidities, and also
also patients that were, you know, as we're learning um, about unique toxicities in the real world, learning about how to refine our, our, our selective criteria. So I want to just take this first case, which is a 53-year-old woman who had stage 4 IPI4 double-hit lymphoma. She was treated with three cycles of REPOC and had primary refractory disease. She went on to have two more cycles of chemotherapy, two more type, two more rounds, or two more lines of chemotherapy and had disease progression. And then she went on and got treated with AxiCell. And her course was complicated by grade two CRS as well as grade three neurotoxicity. And she had a subarachnoid hemorrhage. And at the beginning, we weren't really convinced. We thought that was an incidental finding. But she didn't actually have an aneurysm that was found. Um, and I think in so the good news is she she recovered from her subarachnoid hemorrhage, um, and she's uh, 12 months out in, in an ongoing CR. Um, but I think this uh, appearance of the subarachnoid hemorrhage, I think now we're, we're, we're seeing some of, some of these uh, um, intracranial abnormalities more and more, and it, it gave us, at least at Dana-Farber, pause to say, you know, we really should think about patients who are on uh, anticoagulation or antiplatelet agents before taking them through this, because this could be an increased risk. Um, so that's, that's one consideration. Um, here is a patient um, who had a stage three diffuse large B cell lymphoma GCB subtype who got RCHOP with a CR but then two years at uh, two years relapsed he got rice uh, without response got RGDP with radiation and ultimately had a CR and went on to have an auto transplant and then he relapsed within one year of his auto transplant so he, he, the decision was made to take him to treatment with AxiCell as well, um, but his pretreatment echo, so we do an echo in all of these patients to, to assess their cardiac function, showed critical AS, uh, at which point we sent him to one of our cardiologists uh, who did a, put him, did a stress test, and there were critical findings. So he underwent cardiac catheterization and had a percutaneous aortic valve replacement as well as stenting of his right coronary artery, two things which would have excluded him from going on to Zuma-1, but we decided that, uh, so we, we had to delay his uh, AxiCell infusion um, so that he could recover from this and also finish the, the five weeks of dual antiplatelet uh, therapy. Um, and then his AxiCell infusion was further delayed because due to bad luck, he ended up with an enteroviral infection on the day he was supposed to get his cells. Um, and he, but he eventually got his cells, and his course was complicated by grade 2 CRS and grade 3 neurotoxicity. He did develop a Sakasubu's cardiomyopathy. He also had, a, had atrial fibrillation and had a transient ischemic attack, but he's totally recovered as well, and his one-month scan showed a CR, and his nine-month scan showed an ongoing CR. So I think this is a patient that many people would have looked at and said, this, he's, he's too high risk. It may not even refer them to a CAR T-cell center, but I think, you know, where we get a lot of specialists on board to, to manage these patients um, and help uh, maximize their, their, or minimize their risk, uh, we can successfully take these patients through uh, CAR T-cell therapy, and, and he's doing great. So this was a patient of mine, 66-year-old with stage 4 IPI5 diffuse large B-cell lymphoma ABC subtype. Uh, he got RCHOP and had one of these initial responses, but then rapid progression. Got RGDP again with an initial response, but then rapid relapse before he could get to auto transplant. And then was treated with rice with progressive disease, which allowed him to qualify for the Zuma-1 study at the time. But on screening, he had an, a brain MRI that showed CNS involvement. He was asymptomatic at the time. So he went on to get CNS-directed therapies and ultimately an, an auto-transplant because he had a complete response to therapy, but then relapsed uh, within nine months uh, with minimal disease and disease not at that time involving his CNS. So he went on to get treated with AxiCell. Um, and when we, uh, during his treatment, he had developed grade two CRS and grade three neurotoxicity. And then during a workup for his high fevers, he had a CAT scan of his sinuses that showed um, involvement 
involvement of the sinuses by his lymphoma now invading into the central nervous system. So this is someone who we actually probably wouldn't have treated had we had the scan ahead of time because we right now we're, we're not treating patients with active CNS disease, but it was inadvertent. Um, but he has had a CR um, both in his CNS as well as extra CNS uh, to AxiCell um, at one month and at three months now as well. So finally, this is, a, this is sort of a dramatic case to show that what happens if patients get to us too late. Um, so this was a 63-year-old man from India with stage 4 uh, GCB DLBCL who had multiple lines of therapy with progressive disease. He had primary refractory disease. And he traveled to the United States delayed because of issues with his visa. Um, his travel was complicated by bilateral DVTs and severe bilateral weakness upon arrival. So his performance status was a 4. When he came to see me, his LDH was 2,500. Um, we did, because of the weakness, we did a brain and spine MRI that were negative for CNS involvement, and he had a PET scan that was shown here, which just showed that his disease was really infiltrating his, uh, his psoas muscles and his muscles of his, and his gluteus muscles, and that was the reason for it, the reason that he couldn't walk at that point. Um, so this is someone who I wasn't sure, given what I told you before about the fact that it takes about three to four weeks to manufacture these cells, that he was going to make it to have his cells be manufactured, and so I only felt like I could do that if, if we could manage his disease in that interim, and, I, and the only way I could test that was to give him a cycle of chemotherapy and see if he had even a transient response to that. Um, and he didn't, unfortunately, and developed progressive disease and ultimately was deemed not to be a CAR T-cell candidate. So this, you know, this is an example, an extreme example, but one that, and this, this, this delay in getting care was not because of, you know, it was because of uh, unavoidable obstacles, but I think this is an example of what happens if, if uh, transfer to a CAR T-cell uh, facility um, is delayed. So who should be referred for commercial CAR T-cell therapy then, given sort of that uh, um, that tour de force of those cases. So the FDA label's very broad. Um, patients with relapse refractory, high-grade B-cell lymphoma, DLBCL, primary mediastinal, large B-cell lymphoma, that would be for AxiCell only, or transformed follicular lymphoma after two lines of systemic therapy. Uh, it excludes primary CNS lymphoma. There is no upper age limit in the FDA label, and there's no, no, there's no uh, um, indication that the tumor must demonstrate CD19 positivity. In fact, on the Zuma 1 trial, they went back and looked at several cases that were CD19 uh, negative, and the response rate was 75% amongst, uh, amongst those patients. So it goes to the, speaking to the question about CD20 positivity and mantle cell lymphoma that we discussed before. And then I think the real-world studies suggest that extending criteria beyond clinical trial criteria preserves efficacy without an increase in toxicity. And so each center then, I think, has the flexibility of deciding um, what their eligibility criteria will be. I think some special considerations that um, need to be considered are that uh, can the patient wait? Does the patient have too high of a tumor burden or, or a potential for organ function compromise that would make them not be able to wait for CAR T-cell manufacturing? Or do they have good bridging options? that maybe can um, uh, temporize things uh, while they wait? Um, what is their performance status? Are they at risk of bleeding? Uh, do they have the appropriate cardiac, renal, or pulmonary reserve? Uh, do they have a prior history or current history of CNS involvement? Um, and then is there a history of autoimmune disease or, or previous neurologic conditions that might, make, um, uh, might pose increased risks? So I think, but most importantly, timing matters. So it's best to refer patients at the time of relapse, even before salvage chemotherapy, so that patients are cued in so that if they don't have a response to salvage chemotherapy, they can, they can be shuttled into CAR-T um, as soon as possible. 
And then there are a host of clinical trials, so, so this gets to where the field is moving. So for aggressive B-cell lymphomas, uh, in the third line, there are lots of new products. There are allogeneic CAR T-cells, which are available off the shelf on demand. There are CAR T-cells that target dual antigens, and there are also new combinations looking at different immunomodulatory drugs, and those are trials that are going on across the United States. In the second line, uh, there are each, each company is, uh, has a randomized study uh, looking at uh, their product versus salvage chemotherapy with or without an auto transplant in certain high-risk relapsing patients. Again, another reason to refer these patients um, to, to a CAR T-cell center before, um, before starting salvage therapy because they may be eligible for these patients. There are CAR T-cell trials in indolent B-cell lymphomas, so Peter talked about this before, but there is a trial that's ongoing in follicular lymphoma and marginal zone lymphoma and third line and beyond, uh, and we eagerly await those results. Um, and these patients also may be eligible for some of the uh, phase one studies of the new products that are uh, being investigated. Mantle cell lymphoma, a phase two study of AxiCell in third to sixth line um, has accrued, but we're awaiting an expanded access protocol uh, for that product. Um, and, and again, these patients may be eligible for phase one studies of new products. And then there are, T -cell, there are CAR T cells that are available across the, uh, in the United States for T cell lymphomas as well as for Hodgkin lymphomas, specifically targeting uh, CD30. So I think it's important to be aware of trials that are open at your local CAR T cell referral centers. So what about the future? Um, so Matt's going to talk about toxicity management and prevention. Um, so I won't talk about that. Um, overcoming resistance. So we didn't talk about this, but why, why do 60% of patients ultimately either not respond or relapse? So some of it is because of antigen loss. So these dual antigen cars may um, improve um, uh, may improve outcomes for those patients. Another is T cell exhaustion. So combining, um, sorry, it's combining checkpoint inhibitors or other immunomodulatory drugs uh, or using unique CAR T cell constructs may overcome this. And then the other is the um, the T cell. Sorry, I went too fast. The other is the T cell product. So you know, thinking about the health of the T cells and whether doing this in earlier lines of therapy or pretreatment with immunomodulatory drugs that improve the health of the T cells uh, may be important. Um, and then uh, overcoming costs and manufacturing efficiencies. I think we're all eager. We're all awaiting to see if these aloe off-the-shelf cars, um, which could be produced at a at, at a discount and also are available um, immediately whether those have the same responses and same durability of responses as we see with the auto cars. And again, we're expanding indications into Hodgkin lymphoma, T-cell lymphomas, the indolent B-cell lymphomas, and mantle cell lymphomas. Um, so just in summary, um, we see durable remissions in about 40% of patients with relapsed refractory aggressive B-cell lymphomas after CD19 CAR T-cell therapy. Uh, when we see the same type of responses in the real world where there's a broader population of patients being treated than would have been eligible for clinical trials. Um, and uh, there are many enrolling clinical trials with new products, new combinations, and new indications and in lymphoma subtypes. <coughs> It's important to get to know the eligibility criteria for commercial CAR and available CAR T-cell trials at your local CAR T-cell referral center, and the relationship between the referring and referral center, centers and the oncologists are vital because these, patient, these, are, these patients are going to be managed in a shared way um, following their CAR T-cell therapy. And so that's it. <laughs>